Hello, my name is Daniel Lev Shkolnik, and this is Reenchantment, a podcast about finding wonder in a secular age. My faith lies in humanity, not the supernatural. If you believe that spirituality is fundamentally about cultivating the human spirit, then this podcast is for you. The Open Div Summit went well. It happened this weekend, four days of podcasts, live events, uh, some yoga, some music. It went smoothly and it is over. (sighs) Casey and I can breathe a little bit for uh, at least a week before we dive back into planning the next steps. Uh, Casey Rosengreen and I are planning to expand Open Div and carry on after the summit. We're planning on curating lectures, doing workshops, uh, discussions, even forming small formation groups for those interested in a intimate, committed com- group and community to develop and deepen your spiritual practice or your meaning-making practice. So there's plenty more coming from Open Div. This is just the beginning. But if you weren't able to follow the summit, don't worry. Uh, we have about 70 of the pre-recorded talks that are on Spotify or anchor.fm. Uh, you can just go to Spotify or Anchor and type in Open Div Summit, and you should have access to the full range of pre-recorded episodes that we did. Uh, there were some live talks, that some of which were recorded, uh, which will be coming out later. But for now, get started on the backlog. Because I've been so busy with the summit, I haven't had time to record any episodes for reenchantment. So, here is another excerpt from the summit. This is a conversation I recorded with Father Adam Bucko. Adam is part of the New Monasticism and Contemplative Spirituality Movement. He co-authored two books, one of which includes The New Monasticism, an Interspiritual Manifesto for Contemplative Living. He also co-founded an award-winning nonprofit, the Reciprocity Foundation, where he spent 15 years working with homeless youth living on the streets of New York City. He currently serves as a director of the Center for Spiritual Imagination at the Episcopal Cathedral of the Incarnation in Garden City, New York. And he is a member of the community of the Incarnation, a new monastic community. I really, really enjoyed my talk with Father Bucko. It was one of my favorite conversations that I had during the summit, and I learned a lot from it. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Adam, welcome to the Open Div Summit. Thanks so much. It's good to be here. Now, you are a figure in the new monasticism movement. You're an activist, you're a spiritual director, often to many, many homeless people in New York. You're also uh, the author of two books, or co-author, New Monasticism and the Interspiritual Manifesto for Contemplative Living, as well as Occupy Spirituality, a radical vision for a new generation. And on top of all that, you are uh, a reverend at the, as part of the Episcopal, Episcopal Diocese of Long Island. My first question for you, is you know if you were to tell you know your young self growing up in Poland that you'd become a reverend, what would he say? Well, so you know, actually, my my sense of a vocation for priesthood actually started when I was a kid. 
As you mentioned, I grew up in Poland. Poland of late, you know, 1970s, 1980s. I was born in 1975. Still still during the the totalitarian kind of regime there? Yeah, essentially I grew up in a totalitarian country and I saw around me these heroic figures who were oftentimes Catholic priests, including my parish priest, who had the courage to speak truth to the system, who had courage to speak on behalf of all of us, who had courage to articulate some of the dreams that we were carrying in our hearts, and who offer built communities where those dreams could become very present, you know? And so naturally kind of being inspired by some of those people I wanted to be like them. Number one, I saw in them that they had an intimate relationship with the divine Mm. and that that presence of the divine enabled them to show up with courage in the world. And I often saw that they had to pay a price for that. At least two of those priests were murdered by the government, including my parish priest. Wow. Um, So, you know... As a kid, I had this experience where as a young kid, wanting to be like them, I would put together this little altar at home and essentially try to mimic what I saw in church, which was to celebrate, to say mass. Mm. Uh, And I really experienced something very powerful in that. On the one hand, it was this kind of a silly childish game. On the other hand, I remember very clearly standing there by that homemade altar and feeling like I am held by this motherly presence that is holding me and that is essentially letting me know that even though everything around me is falling apart, even though there is violence in the street of our city, nonetheless, life is worth living because there is this something much bigger than all of it, this something that is holding me with love, encouraging me, to say yes to it. And, you know, observing that whole scene of activist priests, I realized that to say yes to that presence that I was experiencing in my childish prayer was to say no to everything that violates that presence in the world, that violates God's love and God's justice in the world. So in many ways, that's where I got my vocation from. That was the first intuition that I had that this is what my life needs to be about. Now, it took me, you know, a few decades to be able to to get here, to be a priest. But everything that I have done in my life so far in some way or form was really a response to to that call that I felt as a kid. You know, working with homeless youth, being engaged in all kinds of things that always bridged for me contemplation and action. And ultimately, later on, then training young people in this kind of a post-religious world, in a spirituality that could really enable them to touch that divine presence, be changed by it, and then show up in the world as an example of someone who is a person of love, who is a person of compassion, who works on behalf of justice. Yeah, you know, I think you're pointing to something that is a really powerful, I guess, aspect of an activist, you know, pastor or someone who is religious and an activist 
you know, when the going gets tough, when, when you have to stand up for your values or, or against institutions that are much more powerful than you, they can literally murder you, you know, having that sense of protection, of love, of, you know, that there's something out there, you know, or, or something within you supporting you, that's a really powerful source of comfort and strength. And I'm just thinking, you know, in terms of our, in, in America, the, you know, Martin Luther King uh, Jr.'s Christianity is oftentimes overlooked. But if you look at his, his history and his biography, that was a huge pillar. You know, that was, I think he probably would not have been able to, to do what he did, not, not, not just logistically with his, you know, connections with the church, but also internally, the courage that it took, you know, he, he talks about how he would pray like, you know, to, 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 to God to, you know, in moments when he, he and his family were receiving death threats and, and the like. So, I mean, it seems like, Religion is, is, is for you and for many other activists, one of those strengths, one of those superpowers, in a sense, to actually affect change in the world. Yeah, and I mean, yes, religion, but more than that, what religion, when it's healthy, mm -hmm. can provide, which is tools that can enable us to reach this place of receptivity and deep listening where we can begin to sense that impulse of God deep within our hearts, mm. you know, sense that and allow that to come into our lives and to even take over our lives, you know, by consenting to that power of love that wants to touch everything that is broken in us and transfigure it into something that could become our unique gift for the world, our unique way of connecting with suffering in the world and, and, and helping to, to transfigure that into something, you know, mm. and that reflects God's wholeness, God's beauty, and etc. Now, of course, we also know that there is a lot of unhealthy religion. And we also know that many young people today in, in America don't necessarily feel so eager to just go to church or to go to temple or any kind of a religious institution because our religious institutions have not necessarily reflected, you know, the power that we're talking about here, this power that was so visible in Dr. King's life, this power that was so visible in Desmond Tutu's life or Dorothy Day's life or Malcolm X's life, you know? Mm. And, and so I think that something is also shifting there and young people are saying maybe it's easier to meet what we call God elsewhere, you know? And so then the question is, how can we support those quests for truth, for meaning, for purpose, for that intimacy with this power greater than ourselves? So I, that was going to be my next question. How do we do that? <laughs> well, so for me, you know, for me personally, this is where new monasticism comes in hmm. as one of the possible ways of, of helping people to enter a committed spiritual path that could function within the traditions, but that could also function outside of the traditions. You know, I am uh, part of the community of the incarnation, which is a new monastic community that is rooted within the Christian tradition, but 
a lot of my writings are actually about spirituality that can function outside of the church, you know. So the goal in my life, in, in, in my mentorship of the younger generation, so to speak, has been how do we translate some of those traditional forms that we have, some of those practices, some of those tested ways that can lead people to 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 this encounter with the divine how do we translate that into something that could give people meaning today because you know in a lot of spiritual circles at least what i hear is you know this kind of conversation how do we get people to meditate or how do we get people to this or that in a way for me that's a wrong question because already we have lots of people engaging with all kinds of spiritual practices the real question for me is what is the next step what are the next steps? So people can go beyond just having an experience of meditation or attending a workshop here or there and actually be introduced into a way of life that will help them to go deeper in their practice, that will help them to look at their lives through the eyes of the divine and see what has not yet been touched or reconciled to that love, to that clarity, to that wisdom. And then a way of life that can give them an organized kind of a way of, 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 of life where they have practices in a community that they do on daily basis, on weekly basis, on yearly basis. So this way, this can be their way of life, you know, because I think that, I think it was, you know, many people have said that what we, what we need today is not so much, you know, more interesting ideas, but, but transformed people who can radiate that light of the divine into the world. And, and I think new monasticism is one of many ways to, 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 to essentially help people to, to come closer to that possibility of, of living with the divine. Yeah. So, Two questions for you. You know, when you're talking about, you talk about communities and, you know, you mention different, you know, seemingly aspects outside of Christianity. What is the range of, you know, kind of your spiritual horizon? And, and I think you talk about interspirituality. What does that actually mean? And what does that in, encompass? Actually, I'll stop there because I'll let you answer that mm -hmm. one first. So, I mean, for me, I am uh, deeply grounded in the Christian tradition. And, you know, my practices are, are fairly traditional, kind of monastic practices. So I can tell you what, what my daily practice looks like. You know, I start a day with silence, with about an hour of silent practice. Then after that, I have what is called Lexio Divina, which is a prayerful engagement with scripture where we read, you know, short passages of scripture, not for information, but for inspiration. And then we just rest in that awareness of the divine that the scripture kind of evokes for us. Then after that, I have the morning office, which is part of our community, which is a traditional form of prayer that has been done in monasteries for almost, you know, 2000 years. And then after that, normally when it's not COVID at, at noon, we have a daily contemplative mass 
or, or the Eucharist. And then in the evening, you know, I conclude my day with an examine, which is a way of looking at your day through God's eyes. It's an Ignatian practice that goes back to 16th century. And we reflect on where have we experienced God today? Where have we failed to welcome God? You know, are we sorry for, for anything? Do we need to apologize to anyone? And then I conclude the day with the night prayer or and some, and some silence, which is again, a traditional way of... So for me, that's what my day, you know, is based on in addition to that. Uh, and this is something that, you know, all people who are about members of our community do. We are in spiritual direction, means that we have a spiritual direction. We're, we're all required to be in therapy, which is not a traditional you know, practice, but we discovered that in order to avoid what some people call spiritual bypass, it's absolutely necessary to engage you know, in, 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 in counseling and psychotherapy. And then we make specific commitments to study and also to looking at our lives, what we call an ongoing conversion of life, you know, through different communal practices that call us to accountability, that allow members of our community to, to speak truth to us in a loving way. And then finally, there is also a component of all this where we are asked to, to be active in the world. And that includes, you know, teaching contemplative prayer and contemplative practice. That includes doing what traditionally in the Christian tradition is called works of mercy, meaning feeding the hungry, you know, giving, mm -hmm. uh, you know, home to those who are, you know, living on the streets, visiting, you know, the sick and etc. And then in a societal change, which means that we're all engaged in systemic change through connecting with the movements of our day. So this is kind of the framework, you know, for my life. In terms of interspirituality, what we had seen, you know, since really the 60s in this country, that there are lots of teachers from the East who came to our country here and who brought wonderful teachings of Buddhism, wonderful teachings of yoga and Hinduism, wonderful teachings of Sufism. And that created some interesting dialogical exchanges between them. One was uh, the one that Father Thomas Keating organized, where for 25 years or so, some of those leading teachers from different traditions would gather together for a week at the Snowmass Monastery in Colorado, and they would pray together, talk with each other, and they would gather not as representatives of, of their traditions, but as friends mm. who were deep practitioners of their traditions and they shared you know about their traditions but not from any kind of a teaching position but rather as friends on a journey and out of that emerged some extraordinary friendships across traditions and then there is a almost a generation of people who were raised on those dialogues, who read books written by some of those practitioners and whose practice became very much interfaith, where they began, you know, enriching their practices. You know, they would belong to tradition, but then they would also maybe engage with another tradition. And all of that eventually kind of gave birth to what brother Wayne Teasdale called interspirituality, what Matthew Fox called deep ecumenism. And, you know, it kind of has many different names and forms, but essentially it's a way of being spiritual. You know, in our book on new monasticism, we say that there are three ways of being interspiritual. One is that you have a tradition 
but that you also drink from another tradition. Then the second way of being interspiritual is what some people call dual belonging, where you kind of, in a way, are immersed and participate in more than one tradition at once. And that often creates some conflict for people because on a level of theology, those traditions tend to be very different, you know? But some people are called to that. And we have people like Abhishek Tananda in India. We have people like Lex Hickson, you know, who was also a Sufi sheikh in New York. And those people engage in that kind of practice of interspirituality. Sometimes that creates some tensions within them, but oftentimes as a result, they're able to give birth to something that can kind of speak to the future, you know? And then the third way of being interspiritual is really when people are not so much immersed in the tradition, but they tend to engage with different practices from different traditions. And we see a lot of young people today who feel called to different practices, but who don't necessarily find a home within one tradition. Now, I think that can be very difficult because that means at least at this stage in America, there aren't too many places where one can receive mentorship when one can receive any kind of extended spiritual training. There are not many experts who know how to support people who are in this third group of interspirituality. And what that means is that those people who want to become more serious, more committed practitioners, oftentimes need to enter a tradition just to be able to receive some basic spiritual formation. And I think, you know, I know in the Christian tradition, what we do have to accept is that many people who come to us because they're interested in contemplative practice don't necessarily feel called to be immersed in a Christian church. And so we have to figure out a way how to offer them the gifts of our tradition freely with an understanding that the way that they will be used might be different than, than what we envision, you know. And, and I often say that for Christians, our tradition is not about preservation. It's about self-spending of what we have. I mean, that's what Jesus did, you know, ultimately ending up on the cross, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And, and, and a very robust answer too. You, you answered several of my other questions along the way. Yeah. And so what does this new monasticism look like both from, you know, it sounds like you are embedded in part of a community where you live with, with others. It's Maybe- not a residential community. It's a community. The community is called the community of the incarnation And it's a dispersed community, which means Mm. that people commit to our way of life and our rule of life that encompasses all of the practices that I mentioned and some more stuff. And, you know, people spend time with each other and are committed to praying with each other every day and practicing with each other, but they don't necessarily live with each other. When you look at the new monasticism, movement as a as a kind of a movement you have different expressions of it you know you have some communities that are residential and some communities that are dispersed and you also have some communities that are christian and you have some community that are communities that are interfaith or even interspiritual i think many of the interspiritual communities are still kind of in the process of figuring out how to do that in the context where there isn't really one common narrative. Even though many narratives have been proposed, like our book, New Monasticism, 
is a proposal of that kind of a narrative in terms of, you know, what are their essentials for someone who is committing to a contemplative life? What are their essentials in terms of practices? What are their essentials in terms of vows and commitments? And what are their essentials in terms of understanding the outline of a spiritual journey and especially the periods of spiritual practice that what we would call maybe in a Christian tradition dry periods mm. what Saint John of the Cross you know called the dark night of of, of, of the senses and the dark night of, 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 of the of the spirit you know like how do you deal with that how do you engage with that how do you ask for support how do you navigate those complex, inner realities of, of contemplative life, you know? So new monasticism is one of those proposals, I'm now speaking about the book, that tends to take a lot of teachings from the Christian monastic tradition and translate them into something that could offer support to people who function outside of the tradition. Another yeah. model for that is the 12th step program mm. that is very popular for people who are struggling with addictions. But for example, in our community, the community of the incarnation, every single person is in a 12-step group. And that is our methodology of working with what St. Benedict called the ongoing conversion of life. Mm. It's a way for us to look at our attachments, to look at all of the stuff that has not yet been reconciled with that you know, love and will of God. It's a way for us to essentially clean up our acts, yeah. uh, you know, in a small community where there is accountability, where there is loving support, where we can really put all of our stuff on the table mm. and just engage with it in a way that can help us to move forward, to become the kind of a change that we want to see in the world, you know? So the inner and the outer are not two different realities. Yeah, I love the way in which you focus so much on, you know, the practical. How do you actually live this out in your life? What are the techniques that and practices that one can do? And I really appreciate you kind of listing out a whole a whole day in your own life because I think as you pointed out rightly, a lot of people who belong to that third group of, you know, maybe nothing in particular or drawing from different practices they're in search of, of guidance. They're in search of how, how to live that life effectively and really like what to, what to do day to day. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, what do I do? How do I structure my day? Right. And, you know, unfortunately with many of the monastic practices, they almost need to be decoded mm. because in many monasteries, the only way to learn that life is to move in mm. and to, you know, figure out what the heck is going on there. And so I think that it's especially important right now for practitioners of all traditions, especially, you know, those who have some experience of those traditions to really translate things into simple practices, into simple ways of organizing our lives, our organizing our day so this way we can all benefit from it because i mean i meet lots of young people you know who belong to that third category and and who say like how do i practice what am i you know like how do i organize my my life what do i do when i'm interested in spiritual practice but maybe 
I have difficulties imagining that there is a God, you know, like the word God has been used in so many different ways, you know, like how do I engage with that reality in an experiential way? Mm. And so that's why, you know, I think for, for me, it's very important to just kind of translate a lot of the teachings and translate them into something that could be easily applied to, 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 to our lives, you know? Yeah. You know, I had recently a conversation with Tashin, Tashin Fogelman, who is uh, part of the monastic academy, which is mm-hmm. a, a Buddhist uh, monastic tradition. And I would, I would love to, I would have loved to hear you two in dialogue because you know, he is, he and the monastic academy is doing something very similar, but they have a, you know, Buddhism is their, their main kind of uh, mm-hmm. tradition but like you they they also um they're they're, they're very open in, in and understand the kind of you know flexibility that a, a monastic tradition needs in the modern age yeah i guess yeah uh, and you know and 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 i mean i have to say that the buddhist community especially has done an incredible job translating some of those ancient practices and making them accessible um I'm very grateful for, for, for my friends, you know, and, and partners in this work, you know, from the Buddhist tradition who have done all this amazing work. And also some of the early Western teachers who also emphasize the importance of things like psychotherapy. All of that is very important. And I think that we're living in times that are very problematic in so many ways in terms of all the social crisis that we're witnessing, environmental crisis, you know, crisis of racism, and that has been going for a long time, but now it's kind of named, you know, and for some people, this is a surprise that our systems are collapsing. But I think this is also an incredible time because we have access to all these gifts that our traditions cultivated for a long time. And I think this is an opportunity for for us to kind of translate and combine and create forms that can help people to, to move forward so they can touch that, you know, what we in the Christian tradition call the divine, be changed by it, and then show up as a healing presence in the world, almost like some kind of, you know, spiritual special forces, people who can show up, you know, with Mm -hmm. commitment in a way that is nonviolence and be this kind of a presence for justice, helping to relocate people in their truth, in their awakened heart of compassion you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a powerful vision and, and an exciting one. For those that are listening now and who want to find out more about your particular community, how to join it or just learn more about it, where can they go? So they should go to the Center for Spiritual Imagination, which is the kind of a center at the Cathedral of the Incarnation that our community operates. The website is spiritualimagination.org. Uh, and, you know, we also have this for people who join our community, and this is just, I just want to mention this quickly, uh, people go through a three-year-long process of formation, 
And I think that in this day and age, it's very important that we start developing, you know, tr again, translating some of that wisdom from, from the monasteries as, as well as other fields, because, you know, monastic spirituality doesn't have everything. It needs to be supplemented by good psychology and other things, you know, a good way of embodiment and et cetera, and a number of other things. But I'm so happy that you mentioned, you know, this monastic academy. We really are in need right now of those kinds of programs where people can spend a couple of years and really go deep into the practice to receive proper training, to receive proper guidance so they could, you know, grow in maturity. Because what we need now is people again who are kind, who are compassionate, who are awakened in their compassion. Yeah. Well, Adam, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking and I feel like I've I've learned a number of things just by by hearing you speak. So, I hope other people have as well. Thank you so much, Daniel. It's been a, a real joy to be in a conversation with you. Thank you for listening to Reenchantment. If you have thoughts or feedback about this episode, send me a message by going to reenchantmentpod.com and use the contact form. I will actually respond. I promise. If you like the message of this show and want to support the podcast, please share this episode with one person you think might enjoy it. Word of mouth really helps a podcast grow. Again, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time on Reenchantment. Enchantment.